0: Machina. Machina. Machina.
1: Welcome to Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, a podcast series dedicated to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a variety of media, and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors on how and why they use multimodal approaches, And we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. In today's episode, Lindsay Adams and Rachel Shields discuss how their backgrounds in creative writing shape their approaches to teaching rhetoric and composition at SLU. All
2: right. uh, Welcome to episode four of Eloquentia Perfecta. I am Rachel Shields. I'm a grad student at SLU, and I'm going to be interviewing Lindsay Adams, who's also a grad student at SLU. We both teach a class called English 1900. We also both have masters of fine arts in creative writing. So um, Lindsay's a playwright. I do um, fiction and various other types of writing, and so that background often lends itself to teaching people how to do college writing even if that college writing is not precisely creative writing so um i'm going to ask lindsay some questions to get the conversation going um and then we're going to just talk about how creative writing you know helps us teach other types of writing to college students lindsay do you have anything to add to that
0: (laughs) yeah no that was a that was a great introduction yeah so my background's in playwriting but i also um, have done television writing and screenwriting as well, so that also plays into some of the different prompts I've given when it comes to talking about using creative writing in a in a composition classroom as well. So we'll be talking briefly about those probably too.
2: Sure. So actually, one of the first questions I had for you to get things rolling. Um, so we have to teach a lot of research related writing in our first year composition courses at SLU. So um, We usually do multiple uh, library sessions with students, and we also have them do a paper where they basically present multiple sides of a different topic through research. Um, When you are preparing your students for that assignment, whether the research portion or other aspects of writing a longer research essay, how do you feel that your creative writing background sort of helps you support that or helps you write that prompt in an effective way?
0: Oh, that's interesting. Um, so when it comes to the actual, like, assignment prompts themselves?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I think I, I think it does help that I have a pretty intense notion of audience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And as, as someone who consistently submits creative writing um, to different journals and to theaters and things like that, I mean, I've always been taught that, like, if your first 10 pages don't get someone, right, like, if they don't hook someone in they're just going to toss them and they're not going to read anymore. Um, So I guess I carry that with me in my assignment prompts. I'm always like, hey, if I just cannot bore students in the first like paragraph, (laughs) hopefully they will continue reading all the way through. I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of like supporting pictures as well. I try to break things into groups um, Mm -hmm. as much as possible, just because I know that like, mostly it's just like clarity and being succinct which maybe is something that playwriting has taught me specifically right that like your instinct is always like tightening the dialogue can I get one more word out of this line like how can I make it move as quick as possible Um, so I think that that's that's kind of helped that like I was like oh none of my prompts need to be longer than two pages (laughs) If it's longer than two pages, I failed, I need to break, either that tells me I need to break the assignment up further for them, you know, that like, if it's seven pages to explain to them what this assignment is, then probably they need to be doing it incrementally anyway, Mm because it's probably too much for them to handle. It'd be too much for me to handle, frankly. If I got an assignment prompt that was seven pages as a grad student, I'd lose my mind.
2: (laughs) So so sort of bouncing off of that, so I like how you're talking about how your playwriting background helps you write better assignment prompts, and it sounds like some of the performative elements of playwriting, well obviously while you're writing the play you're not necessarily performing, but then you're intending it to be something that is performed, help you think about how to perform for your students. Um, not in some kind of phony way, but in a like very honest, I must keep these people entertained and I must keep them going type of way. Um, how do you take your own knowledge of, of um, performance and of how to keep an audience with it? <laughs> how do you translate that to students? Like, How do you get them to be able to do what you are able to do with your assignment prompts?
0: Oh, getting in and out like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, how do you bring them around to the dark side <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> of audience awareness? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I try to make them perform sometimes as much as I can, which is terrible, but um, Mm -hmm. I think some of that I've been doing through using VoiceThread, Um, and for those who aren't familiar with VoiceThread, it's essentially a voice recording system, so I've been using that in place of um, a discussion board for my asynchronous online 1900 class this semester, and I think that there's something about being able to find your voice, both as a speaker and as a writer, I think those two things are really connected in ways we don't always acknowledge. Um, so, so for me, like we talk a lot about like voice in creative writing, but right, it's equally course. important in academic writing. Um, <laughs> and I see, I get so many students, and I did the same thing as an undergrad. I get so many students who think that like academic writing is using really long words and having really convoluted. Right. It's very
2: pretentious and yeah. yeah, and overly complicated, of course.
0: Yeah, and sometimes it's like, oh, that's just how they speak. Like, that's who they are. But like 99% of the time, it's not how they speak. It's not how they communicate. Um, mm. And I have noticed that I think the, the voice third has been really helpful in having them just say their thoughts out loud to like practice their thoughts. Um mm. In, Do you feel
2: like their sort of natural speech is actually closer to what you want them to be doing in essays than the way they usually write? Is that kind of how the voice read stuff helps?
0: I think so. Um, I mean, there's always, there's always the like limit to that, right? That occasionally I've had to check students a little bit or pull them back. But it's just percentage-wise, you know, hmm. I usually have to go tell one student a semester maybe that, like, you need to be a little bit more formal in this essay, Whereas Mm -hmm. at least, probably at least half of them, I tell them at some point that they need to, um, that they either need to, like, read their sentences out loud Mm -hmm. to see where they are getting caught up, like, where they're losing the thread, or just telling them that, like, I just want to hear your voice, just say it simply, say it like you would say it to me. You know, it's the same thing, like, in conferences, (laughs) right, where, like, a student will talk to me in a conference, and they'll be like, well, this is what I'm trying to say, and I was like, well, just write that down. (laughs)
2: <laughs> just say that thing just
0: write that down that was your thesis <laughs> that's right, your of argument course. um mm-hmm. and yeah that that spoken element to it right that like mm-hmm. you know just having them read their words out loud like there's a there's a natural sense and it happens in playwriting where I'm like that sentence I have to break it up. It is too long for one human to say out loud. Right. you
2: know that if you actually say it aloud (laughs) (laughs) in a way that you might not, if you're reading it, sure.
0: Yeah. That you're like, if I have to like pause three times to take a breath, the sentence is not right. And that's true of academic work or playwriting Um, (laughs) either way.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's a really interesting point. And I think, um, for example, at our writing center center, a big part of the process is that, Either the writing tutor or the student is supposed to be reading the work aloud and working through it in that format. Um, so I think what you're doing in the classroom is actually really similar to the kind of pedagogy at the Writing Center. Um, and that is definitely in my experience working there. That's definitely true. So many of my students um, who I've worked with there, like they, immediately understand what's going wrong in their writing when they've read it aloud in ways that they never do if they're just reading it silently. And I, I mean, obviously that's true of my own writing as well. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in the way that you're sort of turning students into performers in this situation too. Um, and that means that they have all the anxiety of performance, but I think that also helps them to think about writing as a performance and writing and having a writing persona as well. Um, how do you think that kind of like, I know you have some directing experience as well, as well. Like, how do you think that sort of stuff comes into play with all the things we've been talking about with audience and reading aloud and all of that stuff?
0: Yeah, when it comes to thinking about them as performers, actually, one of the things that I regret most about the COVID situation is in my lit class, I was actually going to expressly make them, like, in a much more um, literal way, make them into performers, because I was teaching a an intro to lit course, and I was doing Shakespeare Adaptation as the theme, and I was going to make them, because we would learned about different theories all the way through yes. the class, so we talked about disability theory, feminist theory, talked a little bit um, about Marxist theory, post colonial, and We we were, I was going to have them actually perform a scene, but Mm -hmm. they had to perform the scene using the lens of that theory. So essentially their job was to not only perform, but actually perform with an intention, right? Perform Mm with an interpretation. Um, And I think that's kind of what the, really what the Disilogo, the main paper is asking them to do. It really is asking them to put on a performance
2: what oh, I was like, secretly thinking about yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> so explain is, can you explain more about why that's relevant to this assignment?
0: yeah um, because so with the logoi they have to pick a topic um, and of course almost all of the students their instinct is to pick a topic they care about which generally means that they have previously held opinions on it now the purpose of the disoilo is is to make them argue multiple sides of an issue, hopefully more than two, hopefully sort of a a larger network of arguments around this hot button topic or conflict. Um, and and so often it's really hard talking to students about that. Um, because I think that they their experiences writing has always been I like write a personal essay or I write an argumentative paper <laughs> arguing for something. Um, but they don't have much experience with having to sort of shift perspectives or take on a
2: voice Mm -hmm. in in writing. I was going to say, especially voices that they don't agree with. I find that in teaching this, it can be very difficult. Like they they inhabit voices that are well aligned with their own very easily compared to voices that are not as well aligned with their own. Um, Which I think is why the performance thing is so relevant.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and I think it's really good about sort of, I don't know, I think rejecting this notion that like there is a pure objectivity and it can be reached
2: because Mm -hmm. I just
0: don't know that that's true. (laughs) Um, And like, you know, students will write this paper and I'll be like, this is a loaded word. That's a loaded verb. You just said like making people fear. That's making them the bad guy. Like, like there's all these different bits of language we use. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps students to, think not about trying to be a pretend objective version of themselves, um, but actually trying to take on an objective persona
1: uh-huh. of
0: something that is outside of them. Um, and similarly with, with playing with the logo, and like this is, I mean, this is just what I do anyway in my creative writing classes. Like this is my theory of like <laughs> pedagogy and theater um, and writing, but it's like, I believe it's an exercise in empathy. Um, it's an exercise in exploration, um, For sure. like of curiosity. Every single thing I write is, a, you know, it's just pure curiosity, just trying to understand this thing. Um, and I think in an interesting way, the Disar Logo really does offer that. If If you can get students over the hump of, I have learned how to write a paper, it is this way. <laughs> that is not what you're asking me to do.
2: Right. I mean, I feel like it's actually much more like writing a play or it goes back to, you know, classical dialogues where you've got multiple different characters arguing different types of aspects of a particular problem, right? Yeah.
0: Um, No, I've considered actually doing that, making them do that for a prompt, for a short writing assignment mm -hmm. beforehand. Can you
2: could you envision players. turning this research assignment into something more like a play? And if you did do that, what would it look like? Like what are some of the what are some of the elements that it would need to have to kind of cover this need to teach them research and need to teach them empathy and all of these things <laughs> that you're trying to bring together? Can you envision like a one-act play that does this, but also kind of covers everything that this assignment is supposed to? <laughs> I, I,
0: I think so, just because, I mean, it's not far from often my creative writing process, frankly. Um,
1: can you speak much, to much that? Faster.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can I you often sp- do historical work, um, mm-hmm. so I do a ton of research, and even if it's not historical work, I kind of still do a ton of research. Like I often will, will comb through interviews of people who've been through something like what the people I'm writing have been through. Right. And like that attempt to get in their head, mm-hmm. um, probably sometimes to an unhealthy extent when I'm writing something particularly dark and disturbing. Um, but, yeah, that's that's part of the process. It's a fundamental part mm-hmm. It's just sort of combing and, and gathering all of these different kinds of materials and then figuring out what is useful. And I think that's often something we skip in the research portion. Mm-hmm. And I, I know you've done this really well in your classes. Um, so I'd love to throw it back on you and make you talk a bit more. But like, it's not a loss if you don't use an article in your paper. That's still part of your process, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah. I think students don't think of it that way.
2: Yeah, I'm thinking specifically of your play about T.S. Eliot and Groucho Marx. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and that's a clearly a very very heavily researched play where you've used a lot of actual lines from those two men and you've gone through diaries and you've gone through letters and all this stuff and um, I think it's really interesting because you in that in that project you and you tried to inhabit the voices of these two different people including some you know additional characters as well um, and I'm thinking how that play in a lot of ways I could see being a really great research project to to turn an undergrad assignment into, you know? Um, and if you, they're inhabiting those characters really well, they don't necessarily need to quote them um, if they're demonstrating that they've done research and sort of created these personas based on that research, which is interesting as well. Um, obviously, it's it's good to get practice with a lot of these research techniques, but we try to put so much into one class that I think that can be really challenging. Um,
0: yeah, definitely, and I think there's also, um... I think that talking about it in terms of performing a position can also free students to actually consider different positions and not feel like they are committing to one.
2: Mm, yeah, can you explain more about that? I think that's an interesting point.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like oftentimes, um, young people especially, you know, you're still learning so much. You're coming to college You've been taught one thing all of your life and much of what you're doing is probably frankly either marking off that or or <laughs> trying to be the opposite of that as much as possible um, and and it feels like each choice you make is forever I think sometimes mm-hmm. where which which it's not people people shift constantly in their views they change and I think it's actually really valuable to to model to people that it's all right to change your opinion. That doesn't make you a hypocrite and it doesn't make you a failure. It means that you're trying to remain open to, you know, the new information that's coming in, what you're learning, like what's happening to you in your life. (laughs) I think sort of modeling that, like you can try out these different positions and find what works for you or maybe none of them do.
2: Yeah, I know, I think, that's, I think that's a really interesting, again, it seems really relevant to your playwriting background and the idea of, you know, one actor playing multiple different characters, trying on different types of parts, um, sometimes extreme ones, sometimes ones that are in the middle. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, and you want all of those in a play. Like right. Whenever I've written a really potentially divisive play, I have you know, like people, but I have versions of that, right? Each mm-hmm. each sort of corner of the argument. I, I guess this is probably a, a good example of it. I wrote a play that deals with, um, it's a, about a support group for mothers whose, mothers or sisters whose relatives have been accused of sexual assault. And okay. there's really one person in there for just about anyone, um, <laughs> or at least peripherally close to just about anyone's perspectives on that as much as you can. In, like, right. So you try
2: to back. shade it as much sort of like shade the different or the spectrum of perspectives that exist yeah. within this. Right. But in <laughs> a
0: weird way, it is kind of a disoy logo. I'm just throwing all these characters in a room and being like, figure <laughs> this out um, right. as much as we can. So I'm <laughs> going to throw it back on you now. You've asked some really good questions, but how do you feel because, it's interesting because oftentimes my work is forcing them out of what they expect of the writing process itself and what mm-hmm. it is to be writing, you know, just making it live in that way. Right. How do you feel like your fiction background has has affected that? And your work <laughs> as an artist as well. You didn't even bring that up.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um it's so I think that part of part of the way that works is I'm definitely interested in um Work that crosses genres. Technically my MFA was focused on fiction but I have some poems that are published, I have creative nonfiction, and I kind of do whatever seems to suit the thing that I'm writing about at that particular moment and so I think that part of what happens to me when I'm teaching research writing is I spend a lot of time with students trying to think through what's actually going to make sense for their topic rather than saying there's one form that this can take. And I think that's really tough for a lot of them because many of them really do just want a template that they can kind of like throw their whole research project into. Um, but I like to, I, I tend to take them through that process pretty slowly because I want them to have a lot of decision points where they can kind of think about where it should go next in a conscious way, not just kind of automatically like this should happen next because that's what you do in a research essay. Um, so I will definitely teach them like, <laughs> I, I taught them a bunch about um, how academic essays are set up and how, um, you know, if you're reading like a, an article on nursing, it's going to have an abstract and it's going to have methods. And, you know, I, I talked to them about those kinds of things, but the project that they might end up with in my class could use those things or it might not. And I last spring when I was teaching English 1900, um, I really stretched out the research process a lot so that there would be many points during which I could give them feedback and kind of help them think through those kinds of problems. And so the end results were very different from each other because I was trying to match content and form. (laughs) And I think that's true in general of my creative writing practice. Um, I'm not gonna assume that I'm gonna write a poem or assume that I'm gonna do a creative nonfiction piece. I have to like think about it a lot and some things have shifted back and forth between different genres multiple times. Um, So that's a kind of long answer, but Um, I feel like some of those things are relevant to how you do stuff too, but I think um, last term when I was teaching the research project, I realized that many of my, my students needed to, even if it was like a topic that they really liked, they actually needed to do a lot more research first and learn about the background of that topic before they could do that sort of conversation around it. Um, and so I spent a bunch of time doing background research first and then they kind of like shaped like basically part one of that essay and then they moved on to part two, which was the part where they presented those different conversations.
0: Yeah. No. And I think that's, that's really
2: similar to what you said. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, but I think thinking about like modeling that at an early point in the class, right? During the that all of these won't look alike and that's okay because everything like sort of needs a different form, it needs its own form, I think is really interesting in shifting from the Disai logoi to the multimodal as well, mm-hmm. that like thinking about that, like different genres and uh, using different genres to tell things in different ways or explore things in different ways, um, how do you feel like that's that's fed your work shifting students into the multimodal from the Disai logoi?
2: Yeah, so for those who aren't slew comp people, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we, at the end of the term, we do a multimodal project with our students where, um, basically they're supposed to write, they're supposed to write something in non-writing. Um, <laughs> but, um, in the way I've done the multimodal project, the terms that I've taught composition here is that, um, they build it off of their longer Dizzy Logo project. So they find sort of a small piece of that project to turn into their multimodal project. And I think it's a little bit easier if I give a specific example. So, I had one student who did a research project on whether it was better to just get a job for your future life and career or to go to college. (laughs) Um, And so he researched that pretty thoroughly, talked about the many sides to this argument in his longer research paper, and then he turned this into a Monopoly-style video, um, I almost said video game, a Monopoly-style board game for his multimodal project where you had to pick one at the beginning, and then like the two players played against each other and saw like you know who had the biggest house and the most money at the end. His priorities could, perhaps could have been a little <laughs> bit broader, but no, he what did.
0: Truly really matters how we <laughs> measure
2: objectively. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but in a way, I mean, you, he was kind of supposed to boil down the compl- complexity of his larger project into a couple of different issues, and and he it was it was much more complicated than that. I don't remember all the ins and outs of his game, but there were a lot of places where, you know, like it, you would see, it would, it was very possible for you to be more successful, um, having taken either path at the beginning. So it was, it was really interesting. You talked me through it. It was really cool. Um, and so I think that I'm getting a little bit far away from the question that you asked. Um, but again, it has to do with, okay, like what's your project? You know, what is going to be the best way to take some kind of idea from your project? And I tell them basically that the multimodal project is an opportunity to either teach people about their topic or sort of advertise for their topic or um, try to convince people that they're right about part of their, you know, it's, it's the more argumentative piece, I guess, um, or didactic, if you want to yeah. call it. That.
0: <laughs> no, every single year um, I tell students. I like always throw out like as a joke option, quotation marks around that, <laughs> that they could even do something like a song or an interpretive dance piece and then all the students laugh and I'm like, No, seriously You're like, No, I'd love it please, if you did that please don't <laughs> do that. Like, you don't know yeah. how much I would enjoy that.
2: You're like it would it would make my year. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of so. So usually, what people end up doing is that I I allow my students at the end of their research project to kind of like take the run stance finally in the conclusion, and then that stance evolves into their multimodal project. Um, But again, I try to give it enough time that they can talk through multiple options with me, with each other. They can sort of like practice some options and see if they actually make sense with their topic before they pick what they're going to do for their project. Um,
0: I think that word is really key is the practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's often what gets lost is we get so busy with like objectives and, and the final product. And as much as more and more people are like, yes, composition writing is a practice, but it still has like distinct steps. and you know like I think we just lose like sometimes you just need to practice a lot. yeah, at like different things and then figure it out somewhere in the middle of that.
2: Which is for sure something that I have learned from doing creative writing. Um, you know, you just have to you have to write a lot to write well. and I really try to work that in as much as I can in this small amount of time that is a semester. Um, sometimes semesters seem very long, like right at this moment, but really they're not that long of a time to get, to pick up all the skills that we want them to. And so I try to build in time for them to go down a couple of dead ends and feel like they can reverse their path and start down a new one that makes more sense for them and works better. Yeah. And and that's hard.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting this semester where we have the same amount of time, technically speaking, but we don't have any of that give space. Mm-hmm. And I think I've noticed more and more the effect that that has on like students' abilities to consider and ponder and think and then make a decision. Be like, this is what I want to do. That it's not like our semester is actually any shorter technically, mm-hmm. based on the weeks. It's just all of those break moments and and things like that really do condense it in an mm-hmm. in an intense way. I don't think I fully anticipated starting <laughs> in June.
2: Yeah, I think I'm missing the ability to have sort of thoughtful pauses, right? Because I can give them more time for something, but they're sort of off on their own taking that more time. And I think when I have them in class and we're doing kind of like a a work day and I can walk around to each of them and we can kind of talk through ideas and I can have them sort of peer review with each other and that kind of thing, it can still be sort of a slowed down time, but there are things happening in that slowed down practice time. And I'm finding it harder to build that sort of structured downtime <laughs> into yeah. the term as it is right now.
0: Yeah, um, I wonder about, because um, I, I do have conferences with students, but it's hard because it's, students need conferences at different times.
2: Yes. So,
0: so like I, I have structured times where they, where they take them, but I just recently had a student actually hop on Zoom with me. We talked over some specific challenges she was having with the disillusionment logo. and she and like she was about to go like down a rabbit hole left field and I was like no no you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater here wait mm-hmm. um and and like just they're having that conference in a matter of like 15 minutes she was right. we we made it work with her idea um and then of course my conferences are next week mm-hmm but like it's it's hard. But it she needed mean, it right. You're about moment. doing unstructured conference requirements that you have to conference with me three times. Mm-hmm. That you choose. Um,
2: I think that winds like us. That. Yeah, that winds us back around to what you were saying earlier about using VoiceThread and having them speak through ideas aloud, and how valuable that is, and how important that is to work in informally in many ways, and to kind of like allow an awkward pause to happen as somebody works through an idea. Um, and the, the performative aspect of like having to think through your ideas in front of someone else, even if you're like, and again, going down many dead ends and then coming back, that that whole activity is really helpful to getting people to a better place with writing. Um, that like sort of downtime, wasted time, it's not really, <laughs> it's, it isn't really yeah. that at all. <laughs> um, and I think they're so eye on the prize a lot of times about their classes, that it's really hard for them to do something that's like not, an obvious like I get points for this kind of thing
0: yeah um, and it's and it's anxiety inducing to work out your ideas you know that's the hard thing even in mm-hmm. class discussion to get them to do that um you know like they sometimes they feel like the process of working through an idea that is wrong to figure out the, the right one is embarrassing right okay, so that's amazing <laughs> Like we just we just watched you discover something. Like that's what we're here for. This is an institution of learning. <laughs> if you are supposed to know everything, you shouldn't be here. Right. Um, you should have taken the, the other option, your students Monopoly game. Um but but that's yeah, I think that's the challenge um as well. Mm-hmm. Have you used any specific writing prompts that incorporate creative writing for your <laughs> students in the classroom?
2: Um, yes. So, I mean, I'm doing that more in my literature class right now than I normally do it. Um, but this actually fits well with the Disney logo, stu- logo stuff we've been talking about, and I think maybe could work for that assignment as well. Um, I'm having them read stories from Angela-, Angela Carter right now, and one of their possible reading assignments is to add a paragraph to one of her stories in her voice, um, which is filled with adjectives and many French words <laughs> and, <laughs> Very and extremely lush. Um, she's intense. Uh, so, so I think in a way that actually would work really well for some of the some of the stuff you've spoken to about with um, English 1900 and thinking about really inhabiting other voices. Um, I've definitely heard of people doing that with research projects and things like this, where like one of the like scaffolding assignments is that they. Right, they try to write in the voices of the opposing sides. Um, so I think that would work. I just haven't really done it myself, actually.
0: Yeah, no, I, I incorporated like an actual assignment like that for 1900 for the first time this semester, but it really goes back to what you were saying about genre and understanding mm-hmm. what's the right genre. Um, and I think I think students know so much more about genre than they give themselves credit for, or they think they do. Like, yeah. Just by being a living human in the world. Who watches
2: Netflix Anything. series and, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> I was like, you just, you know so much more about this than you think you do. So for my, I'm doing the tech and new media um, theme of the 1900 course, and for one of my assignments, I had them essentially write a botch script, which is this like fake thing that happened on the internet where somebody posted on Twitter and was like, I forced a robot to watch 1,000 of whatever, so like 1,000 romantic comedies. Right. Um, and this is the script it spit out after watching these things. And it's not real. It's just this weird way of commenting on our own weird foibles and stereotypes and tropes, but in this like mildly absurdist, like over the top way. Um, But I had students do that. And even the students who had struggled the most during the class so far, um, who who really seemed to be challenged by it, just thrived in that assignment. In ways, one, it was fascinating seeing what people like picked up on and what they focused on. there were a couple of different romantic comedy ones that were really good. I think there an actual character name, and one of them was Skinny Hipster Boy, um, and he was the he was the romantic lead. Um, and at one point, he showed up with dead weeds um, to give to our heroine. But but yeah, it was astounding. Like it was so varied. But, like they really could articulate. Because I had a, them do a paragraph as well. Like, what are some of the tropes, and and how are you using them or playing with them? And yeah, they, they could suddenly articulate like, oh, wait, there's a, there's like a supportive best friend who seems to have no identity or life of her <laughs> own in every single one of these films,
1: <laughs> who, right. whose
0: entire life is focused around, apparently, helping this woman through her last breakup.
2: Right. Um, <laughs> right. I don't uh, even write, I don't even like watch a lot of rom-coms myself, right? But I totally know what you're talking about, because I just am in the culture <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I and mean, one of my students did something on like that, which I was not anticipating. But they did something around, um, like watching, like television news. Right. And they used like television news as a genre. Oh, cool. And basically, they were just these these two people constantly saying there was going to be more information at some point, and then instead, just like <laughs> talking about cats.
2: Right or right. any of the
0: various things, and then smiling as they talked about a recent shooting, like it was right. it was beautiful. It was phenomenal.
2: Oh, um, I like how you're talking about activating the knowledge that they do have already that they've already brought in, um, and I think we should probably start to wrap up soon. Um, but I was wondering if there was anything that I didn't ask you about that you think is relevant from your from your dark MFA past. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that we haven't actually gotten around to discussing so far.
0: I mean, I think I think it's that like over over my time getting an MFA, I finally realized that no one was ever going to teach me to write. <laughs> I was just going to do it enough that I got better at it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I just sort of try to reiterate to my students as well. um that there there are people along the way that will help you and support you. There will be people along the way who will not help you and support you. Um, you know, it's a it's a mixed bag. But like, find the people that will help and support you, and then just work on it. Mm-hmm. Just just do it in the way that gives you joy, until until you think it's something good, and then people will respond better because it brings you joy. Like I always tell my students that at the beginning of the year that I'm like, I want you to write a paper that is either useful to you, interesting to you, but ideally both, both mm-hmm. of those things, and, and I don't want you to, like, write what you think you're supposed to write for this tech and new media class, or write what you think I want you to write about, <laughs> or what will get you an A, because I promise you, if you write about something you find interesting, the paper will be five million times better, mm-hmm. so, so, to a certain extent, I think it's okay for 19- English 1900 be them discovering what's interesting to them yeah. I think it kind of should be
2: yeah I'm thinking about how I tutored a whole bunch of college athletes right after I got my MFA and it made me think a lot about practice and about how you sort of have to have faith that if you just keep running laps you will get faster at running because a lot of them were in that situation where they had to do all of these things that they didn't really like that felt to the side of their sport but actually made them better at their sport and I have said this to students, because I have, I've had many student athletes in classes at SLU, that it's really kind of the same thing, like eventually you'll be really much better at this game if you keep doing these things, and you just have to believe that that will happen <laughs> eventually. Yeah.
0: You know, well it's kind of like how I think occasionally students, you know, I'm, I'm doing classes over Zoom too, so like I am a face in a computer, I'm not like a real human. Um, I think similarly, I think they think we just like were sprouted from the ground with the ability to write. I was like, I'm not even convinced I wrote well until like my third year in grad school. Um,
2: oh yeah. I'm not convinced of that most of the time now.
0: <laughs> and I, I think some of it is that too. Like, I think that, um, that like natural sense of like vulnerability and practice, mm-hmm. I think it's just like like slammed into you during the MFA whether or not yeah. you want it you, you will practice and you will be vulnerable against yeah. your will potentially
2: oh for sure at
0: some point in that in those classes and I think that like just modeling that like goes yeah. a long way
2: comfort with failure
0: yeah over MFA and over, and over again <laughs> I think that's a natural ending place for this this
2: episode i feel like that is be comfortable with failure (laughs) it's fun sort
0: (laughs) of (laughs) eventually it becomes fun all All right right. thank you so much for this great conversation rachel
2: yes yes it was good talking to you more about this um and uh thank you everyone for inviting us and letting us talk a lot about playwriting and teaching and everything
1: If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or to pitch an interview, please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu. This episode was produced by the SLU Compass Lab and mixed by Ava France.